I didn't prepare a message this week because I wasn't sure if we were going to be here. <laughs> so yesterday came and went, and then I thought, man, I better put something together. So we'll give it our best shot this morning. I say that in jest, and really, actually, I want us to begin our, our time in prayer for believers. I trust, I hope, that there are true believers that are mixed up in that mess. There's uh, something that's it's called numerology that's sort of perpetuated that notion of nailing down a date and a time. In 2004, 1994, I can't remember which was the first prediction the later prediction was yesterday. Uh, let me just tell you, numerology is a mess. It's bad news. And I encourage you not, not to dabble in it, not to touch it. It's just, it's just a mess. And it's not true. But I, I want us to pray for folks that may be believers that are trusting Christ, that are caught up in that mess. That Christ will open their eyes to just the sweetness of the gospel. And they don't need any smoke and mirrors and, and numbers and, and calendars. And uh, they can just enjoy Enjoy the Lord right now in the plain text. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, while we laugh about uh, kind of the, uh, the irony, um, there is a very serious burden for those who may know you that are caught up in uh, numerology and caught up in um, trying to uh, predict and nail down the date of Christ's return Lord, I pray for those believers, if there, if there are some that are caught up in that, that you will liberate them from that, that you will um, just guard their minds and hearts from any more uh, false teaching, but that they can be drawn to just the sweet meat of the gospel, and uh, that they can be drawn to a people that's walking with you, enjoying the marrow of the gospel and not smoke and mirrors, and um, burden for... Um, for those people and uh, thinking that there's bound to be people that are caught up in that. Lord, we pray as, as we pray for them, we pray that you will guard our hearts from being caught up in false teaching. I pray that you will guard every sermon, every sentence, every word that comes from this pulpit, that comes from Wednesday night study, that comes in every classroom to every kid, that you will guard the message of this people, that we can walk in truth and we can walk in light. And we can trust you and know that we are engaging you through the true and complete and inerrant Scripture. Or I pray that the Holy Spirit will guard us and keep us in this, tether us and bind us to your truth. Lord, in these next few minutes as we gather, I pray that you will um, grow us away from being consumers and grow us into the place of being worshipers who are enjoying you in spirit and in truth. Pray that you'll liberate me from my expectations and my even feeling, I guess, a sense of expectations for your people. And pray that we can just enjoy you in the next few minutes for your sake. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> turn to John chapter 20. I come to God's Word in sermon preparation sometimes with, ex well, pretty much all the time with expectations. 
A lot of times those expectations are personal where I'm expecting insight or medicine for my needs. I have needs and trials and ups and downs just like the rest of you. So oftentimes I'm approaching God's word looking for medicine for that. And, you know, most times I find it. I think pretty much I could say all times I find it when I really have a need. There are other times, though, where I approach it, and for my sake and for your sake, I don't necessarily have a real distinct picture of how this is going to be medicine for you or for me, but I just trust it. It may not have a lot of practical relevance, it seems, at first glance, but I trust that he's going to do something with it that's bigger than maybe practice. Because I realize if all we ever do is come to God and come to His Word for some goods and medicine, then that makes us consumers. So we want to be more than that. We want to be people who are driven by worship and enjoying Him for His sake. It would be sort of like a man that comes to his wife only for things that he needs, and he never comes to his wife with a bouquet of flowers and says, I just want to enjoy you. A bouquet of flowers is not practical. There's nothing, nothing practical about it. But it's just saying, I want to give this to you because I want to enjoy you and I want you to enjoy it. So this is a bouquet of flowers sermon. It really is. I was talking with a friend last night. There are three different types of study or three different levels or processes that I go through and study. The first is observation. And the next is interpretation. And the third is application. I observe the passage. Probably 70% of my sermon... Prep is observation. Interpretation is probably the next 25%. And then the last 5% is application. This is one of those sermons where I'm not really walking away with some real tangible application. But I was talking with, with my brother, Greg Fields, last night, actually. And he pointed out that enjoying him for his sake may be the sweetest application of all. That it may change you more than a little to-do list or a little let's go do this, let's go do this, let's, go, let's stop doing this list. Because you're enjoying God and God may change you more through that than he would if you had a clear set of marching orders. So I think that was good counsel and I think it was a good reminder that application is not always in the form that we would necessarily look for as a bunch of pragmatists, but that uh, this morning we're going to apply in, a, in the way of enjoying him. And that we can trust that it'll be good. So let's enjoy the beauty of the closing of this book. I'm going to read chapter 20 in its entirety. And uh, we're going to focus primarily on verses 24 through 29. But for the sake of context, I want to read the entire chapter. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it's withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then by believing, you may have life in his name. I've shared with Scott and I think the elders at some point that in looking ahead, preaching the rest of this book, I've sort of been... I don't know, disappointed, feeling like chapter 21 is sort of anticlimactic. And what I've realized in studying the end of this book is I've realized that the book sort of ends where I just finished reading. And then, are the meat of it, and then chapter 21 is what's called an epilogue. An epilogue is sort of something that ties up loose ends with the main characters. Chances are you've seen an epilogue or a version of that at the end of a movie that's based on a true story. Like, remember the Titans... You know, it shows what happens to the coach. You know, the movie's over. 
But the information is still flowing where you see a picture of the coach, a real picture, and you see what happens to him later. You see what happens to some of the players. Some die. Some go on to be a senator or whatever. Based on a true story. That's an epilogue. And chapter 21 is an epilogue. It's sort of like somebody came to John and said, Hey, John, I read your book, man. It is greatness. But whatever happened to Peter? And he's like, you know what? You're right. I need to go back and, share and, and write an epilogue on whatever happened to Peter. That's sort of the way chapter 21 lines up. And the book sort of finishes with this statement with, here's why I wrote the book. Jesus did a bunch of signs, but here's the ones that I'm sharing so that you may believe that he's the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if that's the ending of the book, which what it, it looks like it is, then what happens right in front of it is uber important. It's like the, the, it, it's like, it's like the, the climax of the story. It's where a story comes full circle. So what happens with Thomas is where this story, this entire book that we've spent almost eight years in, comes full circle. Given that, I want us to slow down and just really climb into this passage. I'm going to begin in verse 24 and sort of unpack it as we go along. And then we're going to look at sort of a character study of Thomas, a character study of Christ, and then a couple of application thoughts at the end. Okay, that's the plan for the morning. So let's unpack the passage, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now this is the first Easter night. This is where Christ shows up, says, peace be with you, dealing with sort of a vertical issue, and then peace be with you again, dealing with the horizontal issue. He breathes on them. Thomas isn't there, and we don't know why. We can only speculate. But one has to wonder if maybe Thomas wasn't there because he bailed on Jesus and his friends and his followers. I, and you can just kind of get the sense that maybe this guy's out of here. We're going to take a closer look at Thomas, but just to put that in there, out there, just to consider for a moment. Maybe he's done with Jesus and his followers. Maybe he's off sulking. Or maybe Thomas is just hurting and would rather hurt alone than hurt with friends. Know anybody like that? Are you like that? Like to hurt in isolation. Maybe that's what Thomas was up to. In verse 25, So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, You know what? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now here we are. These ten, these other ten have witnessed the risen Lord a week earlier. It says eight days later. That would mean the next Sunday is where Christ reveals himself to Thomas. The way they counted days. The first Sunday would have been, been counted inclusive. But here we are considering that these disciples have seen the risen Lord on Easter evening. And they are assuring Thomas that he's risen. I saw him. We talked to him. And Thomas says, bye. Baloney. You guys are deluded. Unless I see the marks myself, I will never. It's a double negative there. We don't see it in the, in the English because it's hard to translate. It would be like saying, I will not ever, never, ever believe. I mean, it's an emphatic disbelief. Now, I want to take a closer look at Thomas. Turn to John chapter 11. 
this is sort of contributing to our character study. We'll have a character study in a minute, but I think since we're here, I want to show you some snapshots of Thomas. There are only two other snapshots of Thomas in the book of John, and both of them tell us something about this dude. The first one's in John chapter 11. Jesus hears about Lazarus being sick. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, and Jesus, instead of rushing off to heal him, sticks around for two, two more days and waits till Jesus is stone cold dead, or till Lazarus is stone cold dead. Pick up in verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Hey, Rabbi, last time we were in Judea, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? That's kind of a hot spot for you right now, Jesus. May not be an ideal plan. Rocks would not be a good thing. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then the disciples are really confused. Lord, uh, if he's just fallen asleep, he's going to recover. He'll wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Men, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, this is the first picture that we have of Thomas. The twin said to his fellow disciples, he didn't say it to Jesus. You could imagine this guy turning to his other disciples and saying this, Let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) We might as well all go die with him. I don't know if you hear it and see it, but I hear cynicism and I hear sarcasm all up in there. Turn to John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1. This is, it. this is at the Lord's Supper context. He's teaching the disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Judas has left the table, and they're quite troubled at this point. He's also told them that he's going away. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Uh, Lord, we do not know where you're even going. How can we even know the way? Now, I don't know if you hear it there, but I hear Debbie Downer right there. I I hear Jesus, I, I appreciate your kind words on not being troubled, not being discouraged, but you tell us you're going somewhere and you don't even tell us how to get there. It's the only other snapshots that we have of Thomas. Those three snapshots of Thomas tell me that this is the disciples' version of Eeyore. Some of you may remember Eeyore. He's the, uh, I read, uh, found a little comment about him that he's generally characterized as a pessimistic, gloomy, depressed, anhedontic. That, that means inability to experience pleasure from activities once enjoyed. Old gray stuffed donkey. 
I read that and I said, man, that's Thomas. That's Thomas right there. Debbie Downer, Eeyore. So maybe he's off moping the first Easter night. One thing we know for sure is he wasn't with the others. He wasn't in community, but apparently isolated himself on that first Easter night. An old gray stuffed donkey off by himself. Let's pick up in verse 26. Eight days later, this would be the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, It's so cool, he turns specifically to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. John makes the point to set up the scene almost verbatim. Same locked doors. Disciples are together. This time Thomas is with him. Jesus shows up, shares the same exact greeting. I was sharing this with my small group on Monday night, kind of thinking out loud. I wonder why he didn't breathe on Thomas. And Luke said, you know, I bet he showed up and said, Hey, Thomas. (laughs) Funny man. But Thomas demanded empirical evidence. He said, I want to see him. I want to touch him. And Jesus shows up and offers the empirical evidence that Thomas demanded. Along with a command not to disbelieve, but rather believe. And Thomas responds with a profound confession. We're going to take a closer look at the confession later. But I want you to understand that this profession is the most significant profession of the deity of Christ In our Bibles. In our Bibles. From the supreme doubter. First of all, I want to consider that this guy named Thomas had walked with Christ for three years, 24 and 7. Seeing clearly and daily his humanity. I was thinking about the times where Christy and my family have gone camping with some of y'all. And I'm thinking about how you get to know people when you're camping. You have uninterrupted time out in the elements, out in the woods. And something about it, you get to know their humanity. You get to know the fun things about them, but you also get to know the quirky things about them. And maybe even the frail and feeble things about them. And these guys have basically spent three years, 24-7, camping with Christ. And for me, camping with somebody really makes me understand that there's a title of a book out there that says, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. <laughs> camping proves that. <laughs> no, you're just as weird as the rest of them. That's where we get the phrase, not from camping, but from spending time together. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's why a lot of times leaders don't want people to get close to them because they go, when you, when you get to know me, you won't want to follow me anymore. That's worldly leadership. Because reality, you, get, you spend time with people, you realize their frailties and their failings. And these guys spent three years in that place with Christ. And yet here Thomas is saying, I'm seeing you as nothing less than 
God. God. It's a shocking profession. Thomas witnessed his walk. He witnessed his teaching. He may have, I'm sure he saw him sleep. Wake up with sleepies in his eyes. Wake up with bedhead. I mean, just as human as the rest of us. And yet here he calls him God. It's also important to notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him either. In, in, in the Acts, when the apostles were doing their work with Peter and Cornelius or Paul and Barnabas at Lystra, anytime someone mistook them for deity and tried to worship, they said, no, you better get up. Don't worship me. Let me tell you about God. You worship him. John made the mistake in the book of Revelation of worshiping an angel that was revealing the story of Revelation to him. And the angel says, get up. Don't worship me. But Jesus doesn't do that with Thomas. In fact, all he does is give him a benediction about believing and not seeing and being blessed. This is a profound and beautiful confession. And I'm going to tell you right now, it brings the entire story that we've been swimming in for eight years full circle. It's a, it, this, this is the beauty the supreme beauty of this sermon that we're engaging today. That what Thomas says, my Lord, Curios, and my God, Theos, brings the entire story full circle. Keep your finger in John 20 and turn over to John chapter 1. If the book of John has an epilogue, then it would make sense for it to have a prologue. And it does, in fact, have a prologue. It seems like it's been forever ago since we were here. And, in fact, it has been some time. But we can't understand how this thing has come full circle until we glance at at least the prologue. So let's look together at the prologue. I'm going to skip passages that have to do with John the Baptist. This isn't about John the Baptist. This is about Jesus. So I'm just going to read select sections from the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that Word, that's speaking of Christ. Later on in verse 18, it says, or later on in this passage, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is speaking of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a time when He was not. When, when God said, let there be light, Christ already was. Okay, that's, it's talking about the eternal nature of Christ. And the Word was with God. And here's a big pronouncement. The Word was God. When Thomas says, my Lord, that's good. Lots of people called him Lord, though. Curios. Or lots of people called him Rabbani. Or lots of people called him the Son of God. Lots of people called him the Messiah, the Christ. Nobody in our New Testament made a pronouncement this strong to say, you are Theos. And this from the supreme doubter. And this just brings the story full circle because John says right up front, he is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, 
yet the world did not know him. We just watched the world crucify him. The whole story comes full circle in these last few chapters. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. Thomas didn't have it in him to believe on Christ. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Ten other dudes couldn't convince him. He's alive. He wasn't born of blood, he, or he wasn't born, in this case, of blood or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but he's born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 10, and from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known as he made him known in the upper room on this Easter mulligan a week later. No one has ever seen God, but Thomas saw him that night in the upper room. And it's grace upon grace that he revealed himself to him. And he was born not of flesh, not of the will of ten men who are trying to convince him. But he's born of God right then and there. Where he sees Christ as my Lord and my God. This is a profound confession. The most profound confession in our Bibles. And then there's the benediction. Going back to John chapter 20. Let's go back over there. After Thomas confesses him as curios and theos, then Christ shares a benediction. Have you believed because you've, not, or because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and have yet believed. Happy are those who believe without seeing. That's us. None of us have been eyewitnesses to this story, but we've heard it secondhand through an eyewitness, a man named John for the last eight years. Happy and blessed indeed are those who believe in Christ as Lord and God without having been an eyewitness. Now, I want to deal with Thomas's character first. Thomas, it seems, is melancholy, cynical, sarcastic. One thing for sure, he's demanding. He says, I will never, not ever, double negative, believe unless I see irrefutable evidence. There's no one else in our Bibles that is so demanding about their belief, that sets such a high bar for their belief. If I don't touch the scars, I will never, ever, not ever believe. Can you imagine just for a moment how frustrating this must have been for the ten? Can you imagine being one of those ten? who saw Christ and are talking to Thomas and saying, man, we ate fish with him. He said some things to us. He sent us as he's been sent. Thomas, he breathed on us. He gave us a life-giving message. The Greek in the original language there in verse 25 tells us that the word told there is in an imperfect tense. It would mean that they told him repeatedly. Imagine spending the week with Thomas. They kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. For reals, we've seen the Lord, Thomas. And Thomas says, bah. Not till I touch the scars will I believe. He demanded evidence he could touch. 
The funny thing, though, is when Jesus shows up and reveals himself to him, he sees, just sees, and believes. In his benediction, he says, you going to believe me because you've seen me? He doesn't say because you've touched me. He didn't need to touch him when Christ finally showed up. His high bar and high demands for touching the scars went away when he saw Christ risen in the flesh. This is less about Thomas's character as we consider this and more about God's work in the heart of man. He clearly opened the eyes of his heart, the notorious doubter, not only to believe, but to proclaim the strongest declaration of deity of Christ in our Bibles. Our God is able. You got to see a guy like Thomas and imagine spending the week with Thomas and saying, man, this guy will never get it. And realize that our God is so able in the blink of an eye for Thomas to have such a high bar to then go to my Lord and my God. I don't know about you, but that's beautiful to me. It's an encouragement to me to know that if you're walking with a Thomas, if you're married to a Thomas, as some of you are, if your parents are a Thomas, if your son or daughter is a Thomas, if your friend or coworker is a Thomas, that should encourage you to know that God can open the eyes of their hearts in a moment. In a moment. That's a blessed encouragement. I think so also that's an encouragement to me to realize that when I have Thomas in me, that Christ can help me with that. I think we all have some Thomas in us. He's the most notorious doubter really put on display in the book of John. But the Mark account tells us that all of them were disbelieving. Turn there. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 16. I'm taking you over here because I want to show you another passage in Mark here in just a second. Mark chapter 16. Beginning in verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. They were guilty of the same thing that Thomas was guilty of. All of them collectively in verse 12, after these things, he appeared to another form, in another form to two of them, that's on the road to Emmaus, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Guilty of the same thing that Thomas was guilty of. Afterward, he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. I think there's Thomas in all of us. I know there is in me. You may find it hard to believe that your pastor has doubts. I'm not afraid to tell you that I do. There are times where I wonder, man, is all this, is this just fiction, make-believe? I mean, would I continue on in this if I began to believe that? I ask myself that question. Sometimes I ask the question, are lives really ever really changed? 
Am I ever really changed? I deal with those kind of questions. If you don't deal with those kind of questions, I would argue there's something wrong with you. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor back in the 1700s who was a New England pastor who was part of the Great Awakening, wrote a book that's called Religious Affections. In this book, he shares 12 things that are no sure sign of true faith. And then 12 things that are or seem to be a sure sign. He had unique insight in, in because he saw thousands of people supposedly come to Christ. He's the guy that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God where people were just moaning and falling out into the aisle in belief. He had the chance to pastor them for the, for the years after the Great Awakening. And he wrote this book from that journey with people to try and understand what's legit and what's not. Listen to Jonathan Edwards' words on doubt. When once a hypocrite, is that's what he calls someone who looks like they're believing, but they're really not a true saint. When once a hypocrite is thus established in a false hope, he has not those things to cause him to call his hope in question that oftentimes are the occasion of the doubting of true saints. He's implying that true saints doubt. He deals with four things, and I'm going to deal just briefly share with them, share, share them with you. First... This is the one that's not a true saint. He has not that cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. Someone who's not a true saint, they don't worry about being deceived. Secondly, uh, yeah, secondly, I was about to read the thirdly. Second, the hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness. And the deceitfulness of his own heart, that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. All those things cause doubt. They cause doubt. Third, the devil does not assault the hope of the hypocrite as he does the hope of a true saint. That's the one that was really most encouraging to me. I was like, well, yeah, no kidding. The devil's a great enemy to a true Christian hope, not only because it tends greatly to the comfort of him that hath it, but also because it's a thing of a holy, heavenly nature, greatly tending to promote and cherish grace in the heart, and a great incentive to strictness and diligence in the Christian life. But he is no enemy to the hope of a hypocrite, which above all things established his interest in him that has it. A hypocrite may retain his hope without opposition as long as he lives. The devil never disturbing it, nor attempting to disturb it. But there's perhaps no true Christian, but what has his hope assaulted by him? Doubt is part of the journey. Fourth, just no charge for this one. He who has a false hope has not that side of his own corruptions, which the saint has. A true Christian has ten times so much to do with his heart and its corruptions as a hypocrite. And the sins of his heart and practice appear to him in their blackness. They look dreadful. And it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption or should be in such a heart. But a false hope hides corruption, covers it all over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. Those are encouraging words to me. Because, y'all, I have some Thomas in me. I don't know if I'm the Eeyore or the Debbie Downer that Thomas 
appears to have been, but there are times where I wrestle with and struggle with doubt. And it's encouraging to see that that's part of the journey. The one who doesn't doubt is apparently of no interest to Satan. I want to show you where I am. Mark chapter 9. Turn over. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Such an encouragement to me. Beginning in verse 24. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. Climb into this guy's skin for a moment. Some of you have a boy. Think about this for a minute. I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. But he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out. There's an indication some manuscripts include with tears. The father cried out with tears. And I've felt these, this angst before. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There are places of doubt in my life where I just need your help. This encourages me to realize that faith is a continuum. And it's grown over time. And with each revelation of Christ, doubt is diminished. And faith has grown. With each revelation of Christ... And from his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. That's the medicine for doubt. Revelation of Christ is medicine for doubt. Now, let's consider Christ's character. Turn to Luke chapter 15. One of the things that's blessed me about this scenario, this situation with Jesus and Thomas, is that Christ sought him out. Thomas is such a bonehead, and he places such a high bar for faith, he just seems like he'd be easy to dismiss. I'm not going to bother with that guy. He's high maintenance. Now, let me tell you something. I've thought that about y'all at times. Not all of you collectively, but some of you, different points. (laughs) Homeboy's high maintenance. Man, I'm not going to meet that bar. I'm not even going to bother. But Jesus shows up. He shows up for what I'm calling an Easter mulligan. Exactly a week later, the the scenario is almost identical. The doors are locked. They're in the upper room with the disciples. 
He says the same words to him, peace be with you, and then he turns to Thomas. It seems as if he showed up solely for the purpose of engaging Thomas. What an amazing grace. It's like the Easter do-over. And it shows me something about Christ's character. Luke chapter 15, verse 3, he tells the first of three parables. And all three have the same character. And tell us something about our God. Listen to the first one. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Man, I could just see him picking up Thomas, putting him on his shoulders and doing a little spin around like WWF, you know. Man, yeah, victory. I found him. I found him. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and a neighbor, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one Thomas who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I love a God like this. I love a God that's going to leave the 99 and go find the likes of Thomas. And in doing too, he's going to offer up the high bar that Thomas demands, the tactile tactile proof. That's grace. That's beautiful grace. Now, I have two thoughts this morning on the benediction. The first has to do with divine revelation, relative empirical evidence. Divine revelation, I I want to make the argument from this passage, is divine revelation is better than evidence that you can see. Jesus makes the point to tell Thomas. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Put that picture up that I asked you guys to put up. I showed this picture to my kids this week. I was just looking at optical illusions and thinking about how sometimes our eyes deceive you. And I showed this picture to Daniel and Luke, and they were like, cool, man, that dude is tiny. <laughs> and they were like, no, that bottle's huge. And it turns out neither are true. It's like, it looks like it white sands or something like that where you can't really tell depth perception. The guy's just standing in the background, and it's a, play, it's a you know, photograph uh, that's sort of set up like that to make it look like he's balancing on a coat. But your eyes would tell you otherwise. It's sort of a stupid illustration of the reality that sometimes our eyes tell us something that's not even true. What may seem absolutely true with our eyes is not even close. You can turn that off now. (laughs) I don't want you focusing on that and the rest of the sermon. God's Word, I want you guys to realize, is the truest thing that we can engage. With Christ ascended now to the right hand... It's God's Word that reveals Him. He's not going to show up in the upper room for us anymore, but He shows up every time we gather right here. He reveals Himself right here, and this is truer than anything that we can even see or touch or smell. This is truer than even empirical evidence. I'll read a passage to you. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. It's the end of Luke. It's the account of the journey with the two men on the road to Emmaus. 
He's talking with them in verse 25, and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Christ is risen right here. He could have revealed himself to these guys. Look at my scars, but instead what does he do? He exposes the scripture. Let me show you what Moses wrote. Let me show you what the prophets wrote. And look at the impact it has on these men, these men in verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is how he reveals himself now, y'all. This is how we see ultimate reality from the pages of of this book. If you're believing in Christ today, it's because God exposed truth to you from the scriptures. It is that scripture centric. I read a quote from Jonathan Edwards that I thought was relevant. Listen to this. And yet and, and, and it has to do with where some people place this. Yeah, that's nice and all, but that's not necessary because I kind of have this thing where I see Jesus and I know who Jesus is. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. And yet some people actually imagine that the revelation in God's word is not enough to to meet our needs. They think that God from time to time carries on an actual conversation with them, chatting with them, satisfying their doubts, testifying to his love for them, promising them support and blessings. As a result, their emotions soar. They're full of bubbling joy that's mixed with self-confidence and a high opinion of themselves. The foundation for these feelings, however, does not lie within the Bible itself, but instead rests on the sudden creations of their imaginations. These people are clearly deluded. Jesus told the Corinthians, if somebody else shows up and preaches a different Jesus to you, don't listen to it. You know what that tells me? It tells me there's lots of Jesuses out there. The true Jesus will be enjoyed and exposed through the pages of this book. This is ultimate reality. He says God's word is for all of us and each of us. He does not need to give particular messages to particular people. (laughs) Thank you, Jonathan. That's so good. He doesn't have to show up in a vision. He shows up right here every time you open the pages. He doesn't have to show up in some sort of sky-parting moment as you drive your car down the interstate. He shows up right here, week by week, as our hearts burn within us, as the prophets are exposed, as Moses is exposed, showing us the Christ. This is it. This is the truest thing we engage all week. I want you to hear me say this. And if we need to talk through this in small groups, if we need to talk through this in one-to-one case, elders meeting with you, small group leaders, deacons meeting with you, we gotta listen to these statements. God's word trumps scientific proof and evidence. Don't put on your science glasses and interpret the scripture through those lenses. Do it the other way around. Put on the lens of the scripture and interpret science through that. This trumps science. And I love science. (laughs) I've got an undergrad degree and a graduate degree in physiology. I love science. It's totally legit. 
I love studying the human body and all the intricacies of the human body. To me, it points to the divine creator. But I'm telling you right now, it is not intellectual suicide to place this above all other empirical evidence. In fact, I think it's faith and I think it's blessed. <laughs> it makes for a happy one, a favored one. This trumps scientific proof and evidence. God's word trumps rational deduction. God's word trumps historical testimony. Behind this kind of trust for God's word, I need to tell you, is the belief that there is a being that's created all this, including you. And that this being would want himself to be known accurately. And this being would disclose himself. And that this being would want to be known and that his disclosure and his message would be as timeless as his nature Science changes. I'm thankful for it. It's cool. But it changes. Rational deduction depends on the thinker. And the way we think changes. Historical testimony has inconsistencies. But God's word, though, is true through and through. It reveals Christ consistently. As our hearts burn within us. And they have for 2,000 years. And they will till Christ comes back. I encourage you not to debate empirical evidence with the doubting. I encourage you not to. I encourage you instead to long for and pray for Christ revealed. Only Christ can open the eyes of the doubting. There are ten men that could tell you that that was a long week with Thomas. (laughs) It took Christ to open his eyes. And if you are a Thomas or you're walking with a Thomas or you're married to a Thomas or you work with a Thomas or you want to reach out to a Thomas... Show them Christ. Show them Christ. That's the only thing that will do. The second thing and last thing I want you to consider on this benediction is that those who believe without seeing are blessed. It's not saying that those who believe without seeing are more blessed, just that we're blessed. That word blessed means two things. The first thing it means is happy. Those who believe without seeing won't live like Thomas must have spent this dark week. Unbelieving and demanding. I took my first plane ride flight when I was in college. I was a freshman in college. And it was during the summer I was flying out to San Diego to spend a month on a ship. And I want to tell you, this flight was the most miserable thing I've ever been on. I I shouldn't say that. I should count the rest of my flights after that and since that for some time. Miserable. And the reason being is because I had this thing within me where I wanted to see the pilot at work. I mean, I wanted to see him. Like the notion of the closed cockpit just was infuriating for me. If all I could see was the back of the chair, then I'm not in control. If I can at least see the pilot, then I can make sure that he's, you know, not... Cutting up in the, in the, the you know, <laughs> cockpit or something. I can make sure that he's drinking coffee and not Mai Tais. You know? He could have Mountain Dew. You can have Mountain Dew and coffee. Pay attention to that buttons, those buttons up there. 
If I could see him, I could make sure there's no red buttons, uh, uh, any of that kind of stuff going on. I could make sure this guy or gal, whoever it might be, was paying attention. And I'm going to tell you what, I spent a lot of flights with white knuckles, with sweaty palms. You can ask my wife. I hated to fly. I had this vision of falling from the sky, and I couldn't see the guy in control, and I couldn't trust him. But I think it's through study of sovereignty that the Lord showed me that that pilot is there by appointment, and you need to trust the ultimate God of the pilot, the God that appointed that pilot for that flight, and just get on and enjoy it and just be happy. And I actually kind of enjoy flying now. I really, I don't get sweaty palms. I mean, there's still the possibility I could die just like anybody else. I don't see the fuel going into the engine. I don't see the landing gear going down. I don't see the cockpit open. But yet I'm happy because I'm trusting in something that I can't see anymore or never could see, in fact. And I'm trusting that God is in control. Now I enjoy flying and I'm happy. Happy are those who haven't seen and yet trust him at the helm. The second meaning for happy is favored by God. God is glad when people trust in Christ without seeing him. He's glad as we sit and enjoy Christ 2,000 years later on this morning in Greenville. There's sweet blessings for those who take what God has said at face value, trusting absolutely without the need to see and touch at every turn. There's a blessedness in that. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for a story that comes full circle. I'm thankful that as we look toward the end of this book of John, that we see God and that we see that God took on flesh and that God took our sin to a cross and that God died and was buried and rose again and that God the Son now sits at your right hand. Lord, we proclaim with Thomas right now, 2,000 years later, my Lord and my God is Christ. We are thankful for the revelation of your Son through your Word. We're thankful that we can trust it. We're thankful that it is that powerful and that able to open the eyes of our hearts to see the greatness of this story and the work of your Son. Lord, we are blessed, blessed. We are happy. We are thankful to be favored by you in believing in Christ unseen. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We take the Lord's Supper every week, and I want us to see this morning that we take this supper every week because it brings us back to reality when we do so. It helps to establish what is very real for us and what is not real. And I want us to see this morning that the Lord's Supper has done that since the beginning, since the first time it it was seen in in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures in Genesis 14, very early on, there's an interesting encounter with a, a priest named Melchizedek. And it, he's the, like, biblical international man of mystery. It looks like Jesus making a cameo. And it's hard to understand, but it's interesting what happens. He, he comes to visit Abram. 
and he brings bread and wine to have a, a feast with him. And Abram's circumstances are not all that great, really. Abram has a freeloading uh, nephew named Lot who um, has a lot of livestock pretty much because Abram has a lot of livestock. And they've had a lot of ups and downs. The, um, this is after the Tower of Babel. This is Abram's being called. He and uh, Sarai are in Egypt. He and Lot are going about, and there's too, too much in the way of all of their flocks for them to be able to actually stay together. It's like, we're too rich, so we got to split up. That's, that's their issue. And it takes a turn for Abram uh, because they go out to the valley, and Abram says, you know what? Let there be no strife between you and me, Lot, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We are kinsmen. Abram's being very, very cordial and friendly at this time because Lot's a freeloader. Says, not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go right. If you take the right, I'll go left. Long story short, Lot chooses like the best land, very lush. And interestingly, Abram ends up in the promised land. But the promised land did not quite live up to its reputation. It was fairly desolate. It wasn't as fertile as where Lot was. And um, Lot ends up going to Sodom. Uh, and there is a... Uh, he is captured in, in a war. And what happens is Abram takes 318 men and just goes and really just whips them tail, just throws down on these kings. And he ends up at this feast in the Valley of the Kings. And it's this really high moment in the midst of a lot of uncertainty and frustration. Uh, we don't really have what it looks like we're going to need. Um, our circumstances are hard. Lot is still a moron, and I had to go save him. Now we've been in a war, and he comes out. They won. It's a good thing, but still, things, things are difficult. And it says, after his return in Genesis fourteen seventeen, from the defeat of Shedder-Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. There's no temple here. There's no priesthood here. This is very out of the ordinary. And it's one of the first times we see what we're about to take. He brings out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Usually our doubt and our skepticism comes from our circumstances and the way that we feel about them. Our doubt and our skepticism comes from our circumstances and the way that we feel about them. Our circumstances change for the worse. Our doubt and our skepticism rise because it doesn't make us feel good. It happened for Abram and it happened for Thomas. The same thing that God communicated through the supper to Abram is the same thing he communicated to Thomas, which is the same thing that he communicates to us as we take the supper day, and it's this. Your emotions do not define your reality. I've defined your reality. Do this in remembrance of what I've defined. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. Blessed be you by God most high possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered each of you who sit here delivered, being sanctified in Christ. So your emotions, just like with Thomas, think about that week. He's really bumming, hard to be around, very skeptical, very sarcastic. You hear it in his tone. But his emotions don't define his reality because the reality is what God is doing and what God is doing was very, 
very great and very eternal. So as you sit here this morning, if you're skeptical, hopeless, or you know someone who is, our emotions don't define our reality. God defines it, and we come back and we have the supper every week to be brought back to what reality actually is. Turn to 1 Corinthians if you have your Bibles. The supper brings us back to reality, and that reality is in Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night where he was betrayed, took bread. Now, consider, Thomas had taken this supper, and it was right after it that he was really bummed for about a week because he thought things went south. But then when you think about Thomas taking the supper the next time, like, oh, yeah, I see what I'm remembering here. I'm seeing that my Lord is indeed alive. So he said, um, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, knowing that that remembrance of Christ helps us to be brought back to the ultimate reality that God is doing infinitely more than we can understand, and we should be encouraged by it when we take the supper. The sacrifice that he gave uh, was not on the grounds of as long as, as long as you don't have skepticism ever. Um, it wasn't given on the grounds of as long as there's no doubt ever. Uh, in fact, the sacrifice itself aims to uh, uh, wipe all that away and will wipe that away. That's our ultimate reality. This is, we're feasting at a table that signifies a table we'll feast at eternally at the table of the king, which is amazing. I hope you're encouraged by it. Take and eat. As we take this, I do hope that you drink in the reality of, of our salvation. It's very real. But I also encourage you to make sure you take it uh, in a manner that's true. Uh, for some of us right now, this needs to be a time of confession, not like open mic confession, but where you're sitting, praying confession, um, where I was thinking as we take this drink, I don't want to just overlook what might be still very prevalent skepticism and doubt in some areas. So I'd ask you as you take this, confess to the Lord and ask, what is your unless? With Thomas, it was unless I see his side, see the scars, then I'm not going to. What, what is your unless? Unless maybe you're holding something up. God, unless you do this, I don't know if I can give, give all to you. And so take this in a manner that's true. Drink in the reality of your salvation and confess if there's need for confession so that there's healing. Take and drink. Lord, what a crazy and sobering privilege to know the reality of being seated at the table of the king, carried there, unable to make our way there, undeserving of the seat. I'm thankful for the supper that each week reminds us of, of what is um, actually true. Uh, Lord, we are easily distracted in many ways where we can be disheartened, but uh, the realities in Christ are so sweet, so uplifting, so encouraging, and so eternal. Um, they, they are the very realities that help us to be steadfast and enduring and, and persevering. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would uh, hear this word and, and be doers of the word, and that in the areas where 
where we try to let our emotions define what's going on. I pray that we would remember that our, our reality, what's really going on is not defined by our emotions, just like it wasn't for Abram, just like it wasn't for Thomas, just like it wasn't for all the disciples in Mark, uh, that our reality is our Savior is risen. Salvation for his children is certain. And we eagerly anticipate that day where we are in your presence without sin, worshiping you wholeheartedly. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would um, help us to continue in faith as we give and as we continue to sing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about the whole doubting thing. And, uh, I, you know, I've said things before from the pulpit that have alarmed people. And I think it's because people, I don't know, they put like a pastor or preacher, one of the elders, elders in a kind of a different spot, like we're not human or something. And the same things that Satan assaults you with, he assaults the preacher and elders with, maybe more so, honestly, because what happens if, you know, the, the preacher or elder is, is hindered, then the message gets hindered. So, um, I was thinking about that. Listen to this passage from Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You know, Satan lies to us and says, man, nobody ever really changes. <laughs> Look at you. You're still the same person that you ever were. And everybody else, they're still the same. They're still making the same mistakes. We still have our same quirks and problems. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Man, that's me, boy. That's you. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And so he said to him, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. And I clothe you with pure vestments. Come here, Thomas. Let me take that, those, those dirty clothes off of you. Put this on, Tom. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. He, gets, he even gets a new hat. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's good medicine for me. You know, I don't know if it occurred to you or if it really connected with you to realize that this command to believe, that he told Thomas that was a command. While we still reckon with, hey, man, doubt is part of the journey of faith. We're commanded yet to believe. That may seem weird to command to believe. It's from the same God that commanded Israel, I command you this day to love the Lord you, your God with everything you got. Commanded to love. I don't know if that ever really sit funny with you. The first time I really thought about that, I was like, wait a second. I tried that with Christy when we were dating, and it just didn't work. That she had to somehow make that decision. So commanding someone to love seems weird. But our love for God is different. And his love for us is different. It's not boy meets girl. He's commanding us to love. He's commanding us to obey. So while Satan assaults us with this stuff. And while he accuses us. We yet believe. Relentlessly we yet believe yet again. We need each other to remind us, hey, man, remember those pure vestments? Remember that new hat? 
Joshua the high priest got? That's our hat. Remember what Christ has done? Remember the, the righteous garments that, you, that we wear? That God does not see us riding this high and low of good day, bad day, good day, bad day. I didn't doubt today, so I'm a good boy. I doubted this day, so he hates me. We don't ride that roller coaster because we're wearing the righteousness of Christ. That should level us. It should level us and make for consistent, daily, weekly, resilient, vibrant worship. I encourage you all in that. Man, I'm encouraged to see a God that rescues a knucklehead like Thomas because I are knucklehead. Bad English on purpose. I are a knucklehead. A couple of brief uh, announcements. One is uh, we're going to have a men's night, a Wrangler night tonight out at the McCullough's, and that's actually canceled. They've had a lot of rain. I think the McCullough's are out of town, so two reasons why that wouldn't work. Uh, we'll, we'll reschedule that. <laughs> the last Wednesday night study is this coming Wednesday night, and we're finishing up with the Passover, uh, the final plague of the Exodus. So um, even if you haven't done that, that's okay. Come on at 6 o'clock. We have stuff going for the kids, too. Bible studies for the kids, and it's really fruitful. But that's the last one for the, um, for the rest of the summer. We're not going to be meeting on Wednesday nights for Bible study. Now, we are going to be starting family clubs on June the 8th on Wednesday nights, June the 8th, 15th, and 22nd at Graham Park. So as you leave today, grab some of these cards. They're on the table just as you leave outside. Grab a few of these cards and pass them to your workmates or your neighbors, folks that aren't in church home. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, we want to be intentional about connecting to those who aren't in church home. There's something just sort of creepy to me about trying to woo people away from other churches. It's just wrong. I encourage them to be all there in their church. If somebody's part of another church, man, you be all there. But if somebody's not part of a church home and not known and knowing and accountable and walking with the people of God, encourage them to bring their family to be part of this. It's, it's maybe a front door, maybe a start for them to engage the people of God. Grand Park. Uh, June 8th, 15th, and 22nd. And on the other side is information about our mobile worship service, which is next Sunday, tell how prepared I am, next Sunday at Grand Park. So if you come here next Sunday, it's just going to be you. <laughs> so hope you enjoy yourself, you and Thomas, just hanging out by yourself. So come to Grand Park for worship, uh, same time out there at the park. I think, no, 10 a.m. donuts and coffee, 10.30 corporate worship. So grab some of these, maybe for your own information too. Um, And that's all I've got. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the sweetness of gathering with your people. So encouraged to walk with another people, a group of people, brothers and sisters that need to be reminded about the greatness of a God that searches out a man like Thomas. We're encouraged, we take heart that grace reaches really low for even a renowned doubter and can take a man from just hard-headed doubt to out loud, over-the-top, appropriate confession of Christ as Lord and God. I love the beauty of that, Lord. I pray that this morning that we've loved it corporately. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.